Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Father, thank you that we are here, Lord, as your people. By grace, through faith, you've called us to salvation. You've called us to eternal life. You've called us to be students of your word. Lord, you are, through your Holy Spirit, taking your word and writing it on our hearts. And so I pray that you would do that tonight, Lord, through um, the words that I speak. Would you cause them, along with the uh, meditations of my heart, to be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the elders down at City Light Glenelg, and I love coming up here to um, share God's Word with you from, you know, about once every six weeks or so. Um, we're getting, our family, we're getting ready to head off to the U.S. on Friday for four weeks, and so this is a, a great way to kind of um, uh, close out before we go, um, but we are looking forward to our time there as well as our time coming back um, to be with you guys again. So you guys have been our definitely our extended family, and we love being here with you. Um, we have been, for those of you who've been here for se- the, you know, several weeks, and, and for those of you who are just here for the first time tonight, we are at the end, at the very end of a long uh, marathon, but a long invigorating run through the book of Isaiah. Uh, 66 chapters. We're, gonna, we're in the last 11 of those chapters tonight, 56 to 66. And we're going to give you just some highlights. If you can sort of a picture these 11 chapters as a big lake, and we're going to take a rock and, and skip it, you know, right across the surface. But I hope that it will sort of whet your appetite to get into discipleship groups this week and get into the, the depths and the riches of these chapters. Uh, last year, uh, the end of, well, October school holidays last year, I've got uh, four daughters. We, we took a little short uh, holiday over to Ballarat in Victoria. And of course, when you go to Ballarat, you have to visit uh, Sovereign Hill. And most of you would know what that is. If you don't, I didn't know what it was until I went there. Um, it's just a, a museum, a living a museum to the gold rush days in Australia. And you go and you see people in costumes and you take your selfies with them and it's fun for the kids. But the thing you've got to do if you go to Sovereign Hill and you pay the hundred bucks or whatever it is to get in is you have to go and look for gold. You have to actually go pan for gold there in the in the little in the mud puddle kind of thing that they have down the bottom. And we had you know we had six of us. We thought surely we're going to find you know a lot. We're going to get rich. And no, we didn't find a single speck. We we got nothing. And um, that's okay. We had fun anyway. But I hope that has not been your experience in these 18 weeks in Isaiah. I hope you would not look back at these 18 weeks and thought, man, we were looking for treasures and we got nothing. If you're like me, you're like most of us, we have found a lot of, of treasures, and we've just been scratching the surface of these chapters. Um, I hope that like David was, King David, who wrote a big chunk of the Old Testament, and he looked at God's Word, he was a student of God's Word, and he said that when I read God's Word, I study God's Word, these words are more valuable to me, they're more precious to me than the finest gold. And he was a king, so he had held and owned and possessed a lot of gold. And he said, these words are better still. These words are more precious still, and I hope that's been your experience 
in Isaiah. And it's not because the words themselves on a page can save you, but the God who wrote them, the God who inspired them, the God who preserved them, the God who applies those words to your heart, He can save. And He is the one who is more precious than gold. He is the one that's more valuable than anything else than you can purchase or pursue in life. So why did we spend such a long time, 18 weeks in this book, on this journey? These are the you know, collected speeches of an Old Testament prophet who lived 2,700 years ago. They're not in chronological order, uh, and sometimes the historical context is a little bit foreign to us, and we've got to do a little bit of work to get to the treasure under the surface, as it were. Um, you know, this is part of big, these 66 chapters are in the Old Testament. And for some of us, the Old Testament sort of brings, it, it makes us think it's, it's, it's less, or it's old, so it's less relevant, it's less useful for us. We kind of like to live in the New Testament. And that would be true if the Old Testament and the New Testament were telling fundamentally different stories. But see, what I want to show you, and I hope you've seen from the, the book of Isaiah, we've called it the Gospel of Isaiah. It's what we called this series, the Gospel of Isaiah, Judgment and Hope, because the themes and the truth and the God that's revealed in these 66 chapters is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the same God that we worship, is the same God that is your heavenly Father that we sing and celebrate every week. This is the God that we meet in the book of Isaiah. We are um, about to embark on something we have never done as a church before in our discipleship groups. So our six discipleship groups that are connected to this congregation as well as our a couple of dozen discipleship groups that are connected to our Glen Oak congregation are for the next nine weeks, starting next week, so not this week, but next week, um, going to be going through a course uh, that is a Bible overview called God's Big Picture. And essentially what God's Big Picture is designed to do is to reinforce this idea that the Bible, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible is one big connected story that's all about God, all about God and his plan to save his people and make them glorious through his servant, King Jesus. Let me say that again. The Bible is one big story that's all about God and his plan to save his people and make them glorious through his servant, King Jesus. Now, the framework of this study that we're going to do, God's big picture, it, it really looks at the Bible through the lens of the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus preached about. It's what all the parables that he told, all the stories he told were about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a, a mustard seed or it's like, you know, and he had all these ways of describing what it was like. And God's big picture talks about the kingdom of God in this way. It says the kingdom of God, here's what it is. It's God's people living in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So it's a bit of a preview for what we're going to do in DGs, a bit of an experiment tonight. We're going to look at the highlights of these last 11 chapters of Isaiah, 56 to 66, through this lens, this lens of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that Isaiah wasn't just speaking these words for the benefit of his own generation. 
these words are for us too. Not just the exiles who would return to Israel 200 years after Isaiah. He is speaking to anyone and everyone who is waiting on God and waiting for his purposes, his rescue plan to be revealed. Those who are eagerly waiting to be restored back to God's place, happily living under his rule and enjoying his blessings. That's who these chapters are written to. Let me just give you a quick word about the structure of these chapters. The reason why we're doing 11 chapters all at once is not just because we ran out of time and didn't, you know, didn't space it out. We did this intentionally, um, and the reason is these 11 chapters were written as one single unit. They're one single unit of Hebrew poetry. So Hebrew is the original language that this book was written in many years ago, and there was a, 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 um, a type of poetic structure in Hebrew poetry called a chiasm. And you think, oh, that's kind of a weird word. So chiasm, the word is, is, comes from the Greek letter chi, which is the letter, it looks like our letter X. And the reason they call it, associate it with the Greek letter chi is because if you were to map out the structure of this poetry on a, you know, on a two-dimensional screen, it would look a bit like that. In fact, I've got it here up on the screen. If you follow along with me, this is the structure of these 11 chapters. Okay, so the very beginning part, so the first eight verses of chapter 56, and then the last uh, seven verses of chapter 66, they describe the same idea or the same theme. And it's God's multinational people in God's place under God's rule. So that's where it starts and that's where it's finished. Then going in a little bit further towards the middle, we've got the lives of God's people contrasted with the lives of the rebels, those who rebel against God or the wicked. And we see the same thing happen in chapter 63 to the beginning of chapter 66. And then moving in a little bit further, we're going to come to this theme, this poem of the warrior king, or it's a song of the warrior king coming to the rescue of his people. And then in the very middle, and this is the focal point of these 11 chapters, we see a picture, a beautiful song of what it will look like when the king is reigning and the people, God's people, are rejoicing. This, these three chapters are the climax, not only of this section, but of the entire book of Isaiah, chapter 60 to 62. Um, Don preached on this same section this morning at Glen Elk, and he described this structure as like climbing a mountain. So if you see the X structure there, if you kind of can, in your mind, sort of rotate it 90 degrees, and you picture it as a mountain peak, Think of it as climbing a mountain. You start at the bottom and you get, you know, you start with this theme and you go up a bit further, you get a new theme and then you finally hit the climax or the peak there in 60 to 62 and then you turn around and you come back down and everything you see on the way down is in light of what you saw at the, at the summit. So this is the structure of Isaiah 56 to 66. I hope this makes sense a little bit if you just can map out where we're going in your mind. We're just going to look at this structure. We're just going to make the upward journey today. We're going to actually get from 56, we're just going to get to chapter 61 and what I'm commenting on. 
And you'll have to go in and discover for yourself the same themes are there in the back half on the way back down the mountain. All right, so why is Isaiah writing these 11 chapters? What is he trying to convince his people of? And it's it's not a surprise because this has been the same thing he's been trying to convince us all along. And it's this. God is a God who keeps his word. God is a God who keeps his promises. God doesn't change. God will do what he says he's going to do. That's why he's writing this. He's writing to a people who are prone to doubt, prone to wander, prone to complain, prone to not see their own sin, prone to forget God's beauty and his love and his grace. And Isaiah's saying, you, you, you have to get up to the peak and look around and see who God is. And he's a God who does what he says he's going to do. See, from where we sit in history, we should see even more clearly than Isaiah did because we're on this side of the cross. We, Isaiah had no... I, like he, he had the, 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 the vision of the suffering servant, but he didn't know how it was going to play out. He didn't know about the, the cross specifically. We do. We've seen that God himself stepped into time and took on the sin of the world for your rescue, for my rescue. We've, we, we know this. We're, we're New Testament people, and so we should be able to see what Isaiah is talking about even more clearly than he did when he wrote and yet we forget. We forget what it means to be God's people. And we, we assume, right? We assume, sure, to be God's people means to just go to church and do all these external things. You know, to, 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 to follow some sort of a checklist. Isaiah chapter 58, and we don't even have time to really dive into that, is all about this very thing. It's about people, God's people who thought they were God's people because they kept these religious rituals and practices, specifically fasting, but they were actually really terrible people. They didn't love people. They were cheating people. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about the poor. And God says, no, I don't, that's not the kind of fasting, that's not the kind of religion that I want at all. You've missed what it means to be my people. I mean, these guys are like, and, and we, you know, we have the same thing today, right? We have people that presume on God, just saying because they, you know, you say, I'm a, I'm a Christian or I go to church. I, I don't know if you've, there's a whole TV uh, show, I think, or there may be even two. Uh, there's one now that's called The Real Preachers of L.A. Have you seen it? Anybody? A few of you have? Man, don't, if you haven't, man, don't waste your time. It, it's shameful. If you want to see what Christianity is at its absolute worst, go and watch that show. It is Isaiah 58 on, on the screen. It is what it means to basically be Christian in your words and Christian on the outside, to have all the packaging and say the right words, and your life is just absolutely the opposite of what it means to be a, a part of God's family. You know, we're not yet in God's place. We're, we're waiting. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. We don't always have a desire to submit 
to God's rule. We're waiting for his promises, just like the Israelites were waiting in Isaiah's day for his promises to be fulfilled. And how do we fight for joy as we wait? How do we hold on to faith as we wait? That's what Isaiah wants his people to see from the mountaintop there in 60 to 62. So let's listen in to the encouragement of Isaiah for the last time for a while. I'm going to start in chapter 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. First two verses of chapter 56 are for God's people of all time who are waiting for him to come. And we're waiting waiting for the rescue plan inaugurated at the cross to be fully realized when Jesus returns. We're waiting for him to fulfill these promises. And he says directly to you, I am coming soon. My righteousness is going to be revealed. And you will see it. You're going to see it. Rescue's on the way. And in the meantime, live this way. Live out what is right. Do what is right because my righteousness that I've purchased for you is coming. If you do that, if you renounce sin, you do what's right, then happiness follows. In other words, joyfully submit to God's will as you wait. Verse 3. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. That's amazing. These are people who cannot have children. And yet God says, I'm going to give you a name and a memorial that's better than sons and daughters. He says, I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. That's his promise to you. As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be, become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. That was not the actual experience of foreigners, even in the temple. They were often separated and kept out because they were unclean. And God says, no, this is what I'm doing. I am, get, I am preparing a place for them, a house of prayer, a place for them where they are welcome. They are not excluded. There is no separation. That's what I'm on about. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be, an acceptable, will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You heard that before? Jesus quoted that. This is the declaration of the Lord who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides all those already gathered. God looks at his people and he loves them and he says, but I'm not finished. There's more people still to to come in to the family. So who is a part of this people? Who's a part of God's people? 
Are these promises that God's coming, that he will rescue, that he's going to throw a big party for his people, who are they for? Isaiah says they're for anybody who does God's will. Anybody who keeps his word, anybody who obeys him, anybody who does God's will, that's who these promises are for. Doesn't matter if you're a foreigner. Doesn't matter if you're a, a eunuch that, or someone perceived as lowly and weak and marginalized. You don't have to have the right parents or be born in the right town or speak the right language. It's for anybody who knows and does the will of God. If you do God's will, then you belong. You have a place in God's family. Your name is in the will. Got part of the inheritance is yours. That family gathering place is called here his holy mountain. It's the same mountain we saw back in chapter 25. If you remember that, there's the mountain where up on the top of that mountain, God has put up a table. A really long, one of those really long Ikea ones that just keeps expanding and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And on that table, he's got meat and wine and not just any meat, not just like the budget $7 mints. It's, it is good meat. It's the kind of meat you look at at the butcher shop and go, I have no idea who can afford that. Not me. You just kind of look at it and, you know, drool a bit. Or wine, you know, like you, you pass by and go, man, $200 a bottle. No way. I wonder who can buy that. Um, it is the best stuff is laid out on that table for God's people. And he says, look, man, you think, you might think, looking at that, what, what's coming for God's people, you think, oh, man, I, can, I, just, I, just can't, I just can't wait. And he's like, man, my table, it's not big enough. I've got more people. Put in another leaf. I've got more people to invite. I've got other sheep, Jesus said. They're not yet in the family. They're not even Jewish. They're foreigners. They're aliens. They're strangers, and I'm bringing them in. They've got a place at the table. If you've been following along in Isaiah so far, you'll know that there's a fundamental problem here. Maybe you've been asking yourself that in your mind. Because I just said the people who will be at the party, the people in God's family, in God's place, are the people who do his will. Hmm. Yet even the people of Israel, his own children, who had seen him rescue them again and again and again. They had his law. They had the kings, the prophets. And even then, they rebelled. They could not keep his law. They worshipped idols. So what's going to stop you? What's gonna, what hope do I have if not even the Israelites could keep his will? How do I keep from destroying myself? Well, let's flip over to chapter 59. I said we're going to be skipping rocks. So, yeah, I'm skipping over two chapters. Here's 59, verse 1. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongues mutter injustice. No one makes claims justly. No one pleads honestly. They trust in empty and worthless words. They conceive trouble and give birth to iniquity. So let me stop and point out two things here. First, 
If God's people are ever going to live happily ever after in his place, joyfully submitted to his rule, it is not because they serve a weak God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the suffering servant who was crucified in weakness. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was buried in weakness. He was raised in power. And it's the, that power is the power that he has to save you. Your problem, you see, isn't with God. Your problem is sin. Verse 2, your iniquities are separating you from God. Right now, in the present tense, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. That's the problem. And this implicates everybody. He says, no one speaks the truth. No one believes the truth. Everybody is corrupt to the core. Nobody does my will. And he goes on later in the same chapter, starting in verse 16. He says, He saw that there was no man, not one. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. This is God saying this. So what did God do? Did he just obliterate them? Annihilate them? Destroy them? No, it says, so his own arm brought salvation. He looks at the people and he says, they, are, they cannot save themselves. There's not one single righteous one. There's not even an Abraham. There's not even a Noah. No one. So what's he do? So his own arm brought salvation. His own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness as body armor. I love that. And a helmet of salvation on his head. See, Paul, Paul in Ephesians didn't invent that. He borrows this image from, from Isaiah. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak, and he will repay according to their deeds. Fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes, he will repay the coasts and islands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west and glory in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. That's judgment. Now here's the hope. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Now, man, look, back in verse 16, there was nobody, no one was turning from transgression, and yet down in verse 20, he's going to save those who turn from transgression. What happened in the middle? It's not, it's not that any of these people had a change of heart. It's God happened. God, with the righteousness as his body armor and the helmet, he's got the full suit of armor, he came to rescue you. That's what happened. This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. No superhero to save God's people? No problem, says God. I'll do it myself. I will step in and do it with my own arm. There's other parts of Isaiah where God talks about his arm. He says, you know, I have bared my arm to save my people. It's like he's literally rolling up his sleeves to, to rescue his people. His own righteousness supports him. And you've got to look at this, church. God saved you and me and all of his people all by himself. 
That's the gospel. You didn't do a thing. I didn't do a thing. Nobody stepped in for you. God gets suited up into full armor and he goes right into the arena. He doesn't have to win the crowd. He does it all by himself. He just has your name written on his hand. He gets to work. And there is no doubt that he's going to win. Verse 18 gives the spoiler. He will repay his enemies. Twice. They will fear. People from every direction, overwhelmed by the fury and salvation of God. And that same confidence goes right to the end of this passage. The Redeemer, the Savior, will come to his people and those who turn away from sin to trust in the words of God. Same picture of God the warrior steps in to save his people shows up again in chapter 63. And this warrior with armor on, his clothes are stained in red blood. Same image shows up in Revelation chapter 19. See, the Bible tells one story. And it's, that, that bit of it is gory. This day of vengeance when God carries out justice on his enemies. He says, and it's good news for God's people because his enemies are your enemies. They're those who turn you away from God. Those who steal your joy. Those who attack you and insult you because you follow Jesus. That's a real thing for God's people. It hadn't happened to you yet. It, it will. Jesus said so. In this in-between time, we have an enemy. God's enemy, the devil. And he, he's described in many ways, but in one, one way as a fierce lion, looking for people to discourage and destroy and devour. Some people are captive to do his bidding. Chapter 57, verse 1 says that even some of the righteous, even some of God's people in this in-between time will lose their own lives. But he's coming. Justice is coming. Wait for him. And let him make you an immovable mountain for his glory. So, quick review. We're God's people and we're waiting for him to come. We're in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. He came the first time as a servant to die for the sins of his people. Second time, he's coming back as a warrior to put everything right. Enemies destroyed. His people with him at the table. And the only thing that we contribute to this whole rescue mission is the sin that made it necessary. As we've seen already, one of the best things we can do in the waiting is to keep looking ahead at the future that's in store. And I said before in the structure, it's like we've climbed a mountain, and here we get to the climax where we can actually see the view. We get the big picture here. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been climbing and persevering for. Chapters 60 to 62 are just a celebration song of, the, of your future, of our future reality as God's people. This is what's coming. If you're saved by the king, then this is your inheritance. This is what you have in store. And it's no surprise that Jesus himself, when he had the opportunity to give his very first sermon, his very first expository sermon, where does he go? Well, actually, the, he's in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens up where 
right to the peak. Chapter 61. If you've believed in Jesus to save you and you've surrendered your future to him, then I want you to listen to what's in store for you when you're safe and you're secure in God's place, in the new heavens and new earth, when you're joyfully submitted to Jesus as king. So listen to these are the king's words for you. These are for you. Chapter 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. These are the words of the king to his people. They are the words that Jesus chose to read in Nazareth to let people know this mountain climb that we've been on is all about me. I'm the one. I'm the promised one. I'm the one that Isaiah looked and saw and spoke about. I'm God's chosen rescuer. I'm anointed by God's own spirit. And the thing is, is almost nobody in his hometown in Nazareth, almost nobody believed it for a couple reasons. One, because they were so familiar with him. I said, aren't you, aren't you my, like, aren't you Joseph's kid? Where do you get off talking like this? You, you can't be the one. The second reason Second reason they rejected him is because to believe that he is the promised one, that he is the king, is to believe that I am poor. I am brokenhearted. I am a captive. I am a prisoner. I am weak. And I need to be rescued. And if you're like me and you're like most human beings, that's really hard to accept for a lot of us. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't want to be somebody that needs somebody. I want to be independent. I want to save myself. That's what the people of Nazareth wanted. They said, we're doing all right. Thank you very much. We're comfortable church people. We don't need to be saved. We don't believe that our sins have separated us from God. We're, we're not that bad. I have what it takes to get to heaven, or at least I can act like that. I'm not poor. I'm not a eunuch. The gospel says I don't have what it takes. I was born corrupt, and then I acted on it. You were born corrupt, and then you acted on it. Corrupt action, your corrupt action demands justice. But God loved you while you were still his enemy. Justice for your corruption had to be satisfied in some way, in some other way, so that you would not receive the punishment that you were due. 
so that you could be forgiven and your place in the family could be restored. Jesus became your corruption. Jesus became your corruption. And see, only those who know and admit that they are corrupt, only those who know that here, are those who look at the king and say, Jesus, you are all that I need. Only those who know that they are enslaved by sin can look at Jesus and see freedom. You won't crave God's pleasure until you felt the weight of his displeasure at sin, at your sin. Unless you've been broken, your heart has been broken and made contrite and humbled. You won't desire him. Everything in the world, everything in your flesh is saying, you don't need it. You don't need this. You're not poor. You're not broken. You're fine. Just live your life, man. But Isaiah saw it. He saw God's glory. And what did he, how did he respond? Back in chapter 6, he sees God's glory. And he says, I am ruined because I he, said, he didn't say, I'm a victim. He didn't say, I'm, a, I'm all right. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. I am corrupt. And I live among a corrupt people. And my eyes have seen the pure, unfiltered holiness of God. And Jesus talks about this scripture, 61 where it talks about God, the one who makes, brings beauty out of ashes. And he says today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says, I'm the only one that can make beauty, that can bring beauty out of your ashes. He's your rescuer. I want to point out one final thing from this beautiful text in six, Isaiah 61. At the very end of verse 3, there's a purpose clause. Very end of verse 3. Talks about us being trees. You're a tree. There you go. Why? That he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. That's why he's planted you as his tree. To bring him glory. That's why he rescued you. That's why he adopted you into his family. That's so why he's going to bring you into his forever place and write his word, his rule on your heart so that you would reflect and represent and image and glorify him. That's your purpose if you're a Christian. You're going to glorify him because of his work in you. You're going to glorify him in ways that all the stars in the sky can't compare. The Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef, nothing compared to the way that you will glorify him when his work in you is complete. You'll look like him, you'll talk like him, you'll love like him, you'll suffer like him, you'll be patient like him, you'll be gentle like him, you'll be excellent like him. He released you from prison and then he planted you in the soil of his word so that you grow up in that one spot forever belonging to him. It's the good news. Say, and to glorify God, and don't you mishear me. This is not talking about being passive, just letting go and letting God. That's not what I'm saying. Because if you see the clauses in verse 4, the very next verse, and the, it's all they will do this, they will do that, the, they, you're in that, you're in the they. 
It says, you will rebuild. You will restore. You will renew. You will be a part of the undoing of the effects and the curse of sin. Together with all the saints. That's your future. That's your legacy for eternity. And that's what Jesus has won for you. That's what it looks like to be joyfully submitted to God in his kingdom forever. And there's so many treasures to uncover in Isaiah. Just in Isaiah. And you can spend the rest of your life beholding God's glory in this book and not run out of newness. I don't think we ever can graduate from this book. Just like God said back in chapter 59, verse 21, the king who rescued you, his main instrument of rescue, his main weapon, is his word. His word that he speaks over your life. He says, you're mine. I've saved you. I've forgiven you. I've redeemed you. It's not his biceps. It's not a rope or a net to just kind of yank you in unwillingly like you're some sort of, you know, calf in a stall. It's his words. You were saved because his word came to you either in written form or because somebody spoke it to you. And he used his word to bring your dead heart to life. Live in this word forever. Let his words remind you that his love for you is an adopting love. He brought you into the family. He sealed you with his blood. He wrote his name, your name. He wrote your name on his hand before you were even alive. Before your ancestors were alive, he wrote your name down on his hand. And he began even then preparing a place for you at the table. He's changing you even now every single day by grace. As you put to death the flesh and its desires and let his word do surgery on your heart, he's teaching your heart to be satisfied in him and nothing else. That's the picture of that tree with roots that just get deeper and deeper and deeper in the soil of his word. I just want to finish with two final words from Isaiah, who's been our very faithful teacher and companion these past 18 weeks. First one's from chapter 60, verse 21. I'm going to modify it and personalize it a little bit for you. All God's people, all God's people, including you, will be righteous. You will possess the land forever. You are the, bl- the branch I planted, the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified. See, if King Jesus has saved you, then you're one of those people. You're one of God's people, living in his place forever, planted and tended by the master gardener to bring him glory. And then chapter 61, verse 7. In place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, you will rejoice over your share. So you will possess double in your land, and eternal joy will be yours. That is your life forever in the new heavens and the new earth if you are joyfully submitted to him. That's your inheritance. And that's what you get a taste of even now, even now in the midst of pain and difficulty and waiting. These words are written to people who are waiting, who are seeing the inheritance from a distance and believing 
that he will keep his word, that he will do what he says he will do. If you're hearing this for the first time, if you're one of the poor, if you're one of the brokenhearted, if your thoughts and actions have shown you the deficiency of your own heart, the inability of you to save yourself, Jesus is so ready to rescue you. Everything that needed to be done, he's already done it. You just ask him to save you and he will. All your sin, all your corruption, you can come, you trade it for his perfection. He loves you, he delights in you. Come today and share in his joy. Let's pray. Father God, we stand in awe of the way that you rescued us. The way that you cast the sentence of our sin fully onto your son, Jesus. The way you gave us hope. The way you gave us your Holy Spirit. Planting us in the garden of your word so that our roots grow deep and that we begin to bear fruit and bring glory to you. May the way that we live, may our joy be so clear and compelling that others, the poor the brokenhearted, the prisoners, the bruised reeds, that they would see the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ reflected in us. We want that table on that day to be so big and so loud and so diverse and so beautiful as would only be fitting of you, our King, the one whose name we bear. May it be, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.